Ever wonder the real story behind Christmas? How about the history of video games, which almost became non-existent in the early 80s? Dr. Seuss, who was a World War II cartoon propagandist. Toilets, for which you could literally think a dude named Crapper. And the U.S. political system, which may or may not be the same thing. Infoblast has you covered with quick looks into interesting histories of, well, anything or anyone. I'm Nick Job. I'm Rob Branch. And you should learn some interesting history along with us. People like to say the book is always better than the movie, and I don't always feel that's true. And I think both the movie and the book are valid. One is not better than the other. I do have one exception, though, where I think the book was better, and that's Needful Things. Stephen King's book is better, but I still enjoyed the movie for what it was. Now, the book did go deeper, whereas the movie skipped over several important things. Now, one example where the movie is better than the book is another Stephen King title, and that is It. Now, if you've read It, then you probably know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, I'm not going to explain what I'm talking about. You'll, you'll have to read It, the novel, to know what I am talking about, or just cautiously Google it. In 1993, a man named Irvine Welsh published a collection of short stories featuring the same characters, setting it in the 1980s, who reside in Edinburgh, and they're all on heroin. The stories are told in the first person, and each chapter focuses on a different character, and because we're in Edinburgh, it's written in Scottish slang and terminology. Quick aside, in 2002, a young Jason Soto, out on a date with his then-girlfriend at the time, goes to a border bookstore, finds said book, and picks it up. He gets about half a page read before declaring, fuck this, and puts it back on the shelf. Anyway, that book is called Trainspotting. A producer by the name of Andrew McDonald reads this book and declares, I shall make this into a film, but probably in a Scottish accent. About 98% of the people involved in train spotting, both the book and the film, are Scottish, so pretend I'm speaking in a Scottish accent. If I actually try to speak in a Scottish accent, Interpol is going to come raid my house and sentence me to death. You're welcome. Andrew McDonald goes to director Danny Boyle, who just made his first movie, Shallow Grave, which became a giant hit, at least in England. And Danny Boyle turns to John Hodge, who also wrote Shallow Grave, to turn this book of short stories full of Scottish words and terminology and task them into making it into a 90-minute movie that the general movie-going audience could understand. Now, filming took seven weeks, and the budget was 1.5 million pounds, which I think translates to $200 here in America. I mean, for all I know, Danny Boyle filmed this movie in Gary, Indiana, judging by the set pieces. After filming, Andrew, uh, producer Andrew McDonald made a deal with Miramax Films, saying this was the British Pulp Fiction, and holy shit did that work. This movie would end up making $72 million. <clears throat> now, I've only seen this movie twice prior to this recording. Once when it came out on video back in 1996, because of the whole British Pulp Fiction thing, and again with my friend Bill, who was just on the last episode of the show. After rewatching it a few days ago, I have no idea how I stomached watching it twice because, well, here's the truth, folks. 
I hate needles. I hate seeing needles going into skin. I don't want to have needles going into my skin. I just don't want to see needles, period. There's a scene in Saw 2 where a woman, played by the talented Shawnee Smith, has to fall into a pit of needles, and I just noped the fuck out of that whole scene. Now, after being hospitalized twice some years ago, I can only tolerate needles at best, but the constant use of them in this film made my skin crawl. But I digress. What makes Train Spotting the quintessential 90s movie? Was it because it came out smack dab in the middle of the 90s? Was it because the 90s was about heroin use? Was it because of the techno soundtrack? To answer those questions, today on That's the Bomb Yo, I welcome author Angus Hooverus as we attempt to tell you why Train Spotting is a hella rad movie from the 90s. <laughs> VIP. Let's kick it. Hello everybody, welcome to That's the Bomb, yo, 90 hella rad movies from the 90s. I am your host, Jason Soto. And today, uh, my guest is a writer and the author of the book, The Dead of Winter, a World War II zombie horror novel, which you can order right now on Amazon in paperback or Kindle form. Welcome, Angus Hooverus. Hello, Angus. How are you tonight? Hey, Jason. I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to discussing Train Spotting. It's one of my favorites. Yes, Train Spotting. This is one of your, this is like your most favorite 90s movie ever. I, it's definitely yeah I, if I, yeah it's my favorite I, it's definitely top four or five but i mean on any given day another one could jump to the top but it's train spotting is definitely one of those movies that number one is somebody who claims scotland uh, as part of his heritage it, it was <laughs> it, it kind of that special uh, uh, identifying marker of the movie kind of i think would probably propel it above something like uh pulp fiction which is another one of my favorites mm -hmm. uh of the 90s um the professional uh, is mm. another one, you know, those, there's a lot of in, the independent, I, I was going to say when I, when I first heard about the show and doing the show and train spotting was the movie, I was like, I got to talk about this movie because that was such an exciting time. I don't know. I'm old. So I'm just going to throw it out there. Um, okay. <laughs> so when I first saw train spotting, I was in college uh -huh. and you have to remember that back in, was it 95 it came out in theaters? I 96. It was 96. 96. So you had this really exciting time where 
cable TV wasn't quite great yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything was still broadcast television. Things like The Sopranos, they might have just been kind of in the creative phases, and TV was just about to get really interesting, but it wasn't quite there yet. So if you wanted something cool, you didn't have the internet, and TV still kind of sucked, so you had the movies. And if you were like me, and you were in college, and you were a, geek, a film geek, and you love movies, this was the kind of movie that spoke to you because it, it just had all the things you were just not used to seeing in regular American cinema. It had drug use, sex, um, you know, all these taboo things that a lot of American films just didn't want to talk about, mm-hmm. which made it super appealing right off the bat. But then it's just so well done. The, the way the soundtrack is integrated into the story, the, the actors, I mean, the such talented guys in that movie. And I think it's just one of those quintessential 90s films it's almost perfect. Like it really does just do a great job of conveying the message it's trying to convey, establishing what you know, great characters, uh, great music. I mean, if Danny Boyle uh, was a very gifted filmmaker at a very early part of his career, he was already extremely talented. All right. I wow. I agree. I agree with everything you just said there. <laughs> uh, okay. So I. Uh, so first off, since you declared scotland as your homeland are you happy that i didn't attempt a scottish accent i was i was i was kind of laughing about it because i like back in the day i, I, I gotta do this phrase we'll need a pair of briggs i used Holy to be able shit. to do a pretty convincing scottish accent Holy shit. back in the day uh just listening to friends and people that used to do these scottish accents but now it's <laughs> terrible it's awful so that's that's my terrible scottish so i'll do it i'll take the bullet for both of us that was actually not that bad. That, uh, not terrible. <laughs> I, I I spent I spent most of my Tuesday night prior to this today this recording watching Train Spotting. So I spent two hours with these people, and that's all I heard was just Scottish accent, Scottish accent, Scottish accent. So that did not sound that bad at all to me. That sounded actually really good. I'm a little out of practice. The, like the last time I used that was on a college theater production of Macbeth, like 25 years ago. Hmm. Ah, I see. Macbeth. <laughs> Macbeth. Uh, so have you read the book? I have not. I talked about the book, yeah. So have you have you seen anything about, like, have you even picked it up for, like, a second and just looked at it, like, anything about it? You... I, I remember having lots of discussions with people in college who had read the book, and other than their opinions and takes on it, like, that's about as much as deep as I get into the book. Okay, because, I mean, it's a very hard read. Um not because of the of the of you know the stuff that they're being that's being talked about but like he writes it had like they talk like in the movie and it it's like it's like a it's like he it's like he enunciated every word and then typed it out and it's it's very like hard to do like i'm i'm going to read like a paragraph and okay. everyone don't kill me for this this is from the book <laughs> so this is word for word this is how the book begins uh the sweat with lashing ofe sick boy he was trembling i was just sitting there focusing on the telly trying no to notice the coon he was bringing me dune I'm gonna stop right there because I can already feel my numbers plummeting. That, 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 I mean, that really is that's not easy. I mean, it's, talk about how like your your first lines, but everything I've ever heard from writers I know who have been successful, like those first lines have to just grab the reader and yes. pull them in. 
Yes, yes. I don't I don't know if I I caught I caught one word in there and I think it was cunt. <laughs> Which is also said quite a lot in the movie. <laughs> yes, yes. They they do love that word. They, they do. very much do, yes. yes. Yeah. So I'm I let that story I told at the beginning was true. I picked up this book, read it for like half a page, and I was like, Yeah, no, and I just put it back. <laughs> you got further into it than I did. I'm I'm one of those people where um I don't want to use like other people's catchphrases, but the, to me the books don't matter. And I know that sounds crazy coming from an author. But like, <laughs> I love uh, good movies mm-hmm. and to me if the movie is great and i love the movie it might inspire me to go read the book at some point but if it's a completely different experience and it's going to be reading a book and watching a movie the goals are different the intent is different the way it's written and structured is different so i know some people who you know just think i, I saw the movie that's all i need to see and i think that's okay i think we we kind of get a little bit uh a little bit pretentious sometimes of like beating people to death for not reading books um, right. But if you saw the movie and you liked it, you did your job. You, you know, you, the author got paid for it to be made into a movie. You went and saw the movie. You liked the movie. You know, mission accomplished. So I, I'm not a firm believer that the book is, like you mentioned how the book is better than the movie. It's like, I'm sure there's a lot of books that are better than movies and vice versa. But it doesn't have to be all or nothing. If you if you go and spend two hours watching a movie, you know, it might make you want to spend 10 hours reading a book, or the book version of it. But you know, don't feel don't feel obligated. If they ever make the Dead of Winter into a movie, you don't need to you don't need to read the book. You can just go see the movie. I'll be fine with it. Mm. Okay. I I also have published some books, and if they ever make it, I actually want my books to become TV series. A TV series. So it's a better bet these if days. They, if they ever make it into a TV series, uh, I. I Depending on how they translate it from, you know, page to screen, I would probably want people to read the book as well. But if, if it's a if it's a good adaptation, I would be okay with you not reading the book and then you can just see the show. And I'm the same way with the movie. If the movie is a really good adaptation and there's no need to read the book, just watch the movie. Yeah. I, I gave I, some I'm examples. Totally with you. I gave and some I'm good the- examples. I'm the exact opposite. I mean, like, uh, not. The, I don't really care, honestly. If somebody reads the book or watches the movie and it was my piece, as long mm-hmm. as they watch it and they told me it was good and that I had something to do, I'm petty. That's enough for me. So, like, you know, mm-hmm. read the book, watch the movie, do what you do, and if you get something out of it and you enjoyed it, you tell me. It's a little treat, a little dopamine treat. I'm just going to snark down <laughs> and go, ah, thank you. There is there is something to, to it when someone – contacts you or reaches out to you and says they read your book and you and they liked it and you just get this like high it's like it's like a weird high that you can't i don't think ironically drugs can ever replicate <laughs> well you know the, <laughs> you need uh i honestly i'm trying to see the comparison between those two but the uh, the drugs probably give you a little bit more of an immediate rush whereas the validation of enjoying an artistic creation probably lasts a little longer uh, and okay. cost you and cost you a lot less. Although you know, writing as a mm-hmm. hobby can be can be rather expensive. I, you know, it's funny. I was just telling somebody the story the other day. I wrote for uh, like a regional ma- arts magazine for like fifteen years, mm-hmm. and every week I had a movie review that I did. So every week a movie review is coming out. So I kept get every you know couple of weeks someone would be like, "Hey, I read your review of whatever movie, and it was great. You're hilarious." And I'll like, oh great, and you get that little dopamine treat. And then yep. COVID donkey punched the publication into oblivion. 
And now that magazine doesn't exist anymore. So I don't write oh. peer reviews anymore. And I never realized how much of my own personal worth was coming from those weekly comments from people reading <laughs> the reviews in an art magazine and going, you're a really good writer. And now it's like, oh man, I, it's so much, it's so funny how you just uh, like, it, important it is to hear that from people because creative people if, if you're anything like me jason i'm like a, i'm a giant well looking for just a little a few drops of validation here and there yes um and when you get it it's the yeah it, you're right it's the greatest feeling in the world oh. when somebody reads something and says that was great that was so worth my time and that's really all i want to hear i'll tell you right now the biggest high i ever got from someone telling me that they enjoyed my book was when my dad flirted my book and he said to me that i uh, it was a very well written book and he very much enjoyed it. And I think I lived off that high for like a week, <laughs> not to get mushy or anything. I'm just saying like, just to have my dad just like tell me that my book was good. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if yeah. anyone in your family has ever, so, you know, praised my, you. Uh, yeah. My mom is like, my mom's my biggest fan. And, but my problem with my mom is that she hates 90% of my output. So like okay. years ago, when I started making movies, they were violent, obscenity-filled movies. <laughs> they were they were zombie films, you know, and and they were you know massacres and violence and nudity and blood. The things that I enjoyed, the things that like I wanted to write about, and even like my books and stuff, like the horror books. My mom has no interest in reading uh, anything about the the horror stuff. It's just not her. Mm. And I made a movie uh, a couple of years ago, and it just got done. And it's going to be on streaming services later this year. And I showed okay. it to her over the holidays because it was like the first thing that I ever did. It's like a straight up character drama. And I showed it to her and she was like, that was so good. And it meant everything because my mom just traditionally does not want to see or read anything that I do because she just finds it, you know, unsettling. <laughs> All right. I got gotcha. you. I read about time travel and uh, it was it's a sci-fi novel about time travel. And my dad was like, I know nothing about time travel. I don't, you know, I'm not into it like you are. And I still love the book. So, so that was, that was very As high. It, that was very high praise. It means everything mm -hmm. when somebody, somebody that you care about and you care. And that's everything too, is do you care about their opinion? Like I mentioned, yes. I'm petty. Yes, yes. I'm petty. So a stranger's validation means a lot to me as well. Yes. Um, I, you know, but a close family member, yeah, that actually appreciates what you do. And yeah, that, that's. You know, that's the that's the dopamine and, that we live off. That's the drug that we need as writers. And I do believe that he was sincere, like because he, he's a very honest man. Like he would not lie to me about anything. And I know that if it sucked, he would have been like, man, this sucked. You really need to try again. He, I'm sure he would have told me that if it was bad. So I believe him. He wasn't just blowing smoke up my ass when he when he said that. So well, that's good. I'm glad yeah. I'm glad he enjoyed it. <clears throat> yes. Um. Okay, so the the movie uh, Train Spotting. So yeah, so the novel. Yeah, this was based on a book. It's a series of short stories. Uh, well, how they made the movie is kind of interesting. Is um, the movie is not? Well, it's kind of in like a chronological order, but we do kind of jump around a bit here and there. Like the start of the movie is technically the middle of the movie, and then we flash back, and then we catch up, and then it continues on. Um. That's kind of an interesting way to kind of do a movie, which I think is where the Pulp Fiction comparison comes from. Then in the content, obviously, like, you know, the whole drug use and the <laughs> the the crazy characters. Uh, I'm sure all it, that had something to edgy. do. It's edgy. 
It's edgy. I mean, very, I think, very yeah, edgy. In, in that time of in that time of theater and, and movies mm-hmm. and things were coming out, like that was pretty much how you qualified the movie. Was it going to be? Is it a four quadrant mainstream film? Like what was coming out in '96? Like, uh, like, like Independence Day came out. Independence yeah, Day. Thank you. Day, yeah. You're the perfect example of a giant four quadrant hit. And you know, an independent just covered everything. Like independent was that umbrella back then. Like Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. She's got to have it. Spike Lee. Those. So and it, it, it was. It, people compared these films to each other because they were just doing things that everybody else wasn't. And then Miramax figured out how to put that umbrella out and capture all that, and market it. So I think the, the comparisons to trains. I mean, to a uh, Pulp Fiction to me are always just because there really wasn't anything else like it out there. Right. So you had to find the last really good edgy movie that was released independently to mainstream theaters. Cause remember some films opened, you know, you mentioned the $70 million box office, a film like train spotting wasn't necessarily going to get a wide release. And I believe it did. Um, Cause the theater I saw it at in West Virginia is definitely not on like that small marquee list of movies. They screen things at for award consideration. You know, this is the middle of nowhere in fucking West Virginia. And they were screening train spotting. So the fact that it got a wide release being a $1.5 million drug fueled, you know, Scottish (laughs) drama, it's amazing how well it translated to mainstream American audiences when, again, something like Shallow Grave didn't. Yeah, exactly. Like this was Danny Boyle's technical successful movie first technical successful movie and not that shallow grave did poorly or anything like i said it did pretty good in england it just didn't have the audience in america but then this is the movie that made him popular in america and you know got him you know recognition over here um and then he would go on, obviously, to make other movies, and he'd make, you know, Twenty Eight Days Later and all that. Uh, one stuff. of my favorites. One of my yeah, favorites. Twenty Eight Days 20, Later. Love Twenty Eight Days Later. I think he's a he's an interesting filmmaker because he has kind of he has moved wildly between genres and types of films. You know, mm-hmm. if you look at something like Train Spotting versus something like Slumdog Millionaire. Yes, um, yes. You know, like he definitely has. I mean, he was going to direct Bond at one point. They were going to have him do the latest Bond film. He is definitely all over the map, and he always usually ends up making something that you didn't hate. Like even if you didn't like it, like uh, have you seen a life less ordinary? I had not actually. I have not. That's that's one. It's not a great movie, but I didn't finish watching it and think, oh man, this guy is completely bankrupt. Like I've seen filmmakers before where I've like loved their first movie, and then you watch their third or fourth, and you're like, oh, did all their talent get used up in the first one? Like that was the one good thing they had, and then everything else is just crap. But I never felt that way about Danny Boyle. I always felt like he was doing something at least interesting enough to warrant my attention, even when he wildly jumped between uh, genres. Uh, yeah, he he's a, he's a very interesting filmmaker. Like he'll he'll... He makes some very interesting movies, and uh, I very much enjoy his uh, direction, which includes this movie. He made some really interesting uh, directorial choices, uh, one of which I'm going to talk about is probably the freakiest thing in the whole goddamn thing, and that's the dead baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is probably the creepiest, scariest thing that I've ever seen in a non-horror movie. And like the first time we see this dead baby in the crib, like they folk, it, like the lens is on this baby. Like it doesn't show it for like a second, then cut away. Uh, it's not like it's in, you know implied. No, they show you this dead baby in the crib, 
And then later, when uh, uh, Ewan McGregor's character, uh, Renton, is going through his withdrawal and detox and everything in his bedroom, and he sees it crawling on the ceiling, that is, like, top five scariest scenes <laughs> of all time for me. Like, like, do you agree? Like, do you think that was, like, a really creepy scene? Am I alone oh, yeah. on that? No, no. Totally unsettling. Um, and it, totally, it's just... Because when you start watching... When you start watching Transpotting, it opens up. It's very, you know, it's that fun running scene with, you know, uh, Lust for Life playing. Yes, yes. And you, it's just so energetic. And and then you kind of get into these characters to kind of realize at first they're kind of played like clowns, you know, like they're played like these poor, tragic clowns dro- using drugs. But it was still at that point like about sex and having fun and kind of trying to exist in this world. And then it just starts digging a deeper hole until you get to that scene. And then you're like, Oh God, you tricked me. Like you, you brought me in. It's almost like a drug in itself. Like you've given me, you me this thing with the promise of it being one thing. And then it transforms into something completely. I mean, like, I, I don't, I'm, I don't know if anybody saw that scene coming. Like when no. you started that movie, if you thought, Oh, there's going to be a scene with a dead baby. No. That's going to be the freakiest thing you've ever seen. Exactly. And I think that that was a, yeah, directorially, that was uh, just a, amazing what he was able to do with mm-hmm. making you laugh and making you feel uncomfortable. I mean, uh, that the whole detox scene in the bedroom just in itself could have won an Oscar. I mean, there was a lot of great cinematography choice, direction choice, acting choices. Uh, like, I truly believe, like, Ewan McGregor was, like, trying to come down off of heroin. Like, yeah. he did an amazing job during that scene, and... You know, the the fact that it goes, like, under the covers and it's, like, underneath the covers is just, like, an endless mass of just white sheets where, you know, we see, uh, uh, what's his name, Brigby in there. And, you know, we get, like, all the people, like, at the foot of the bed and then the room just, like, elongates. And and the fact that the movie's called Train Spotting and then the wallpaper is trains on it, um, just a brilliant choice. Yeah. I, you're absolutely 100% right. And I think that's one of the things about, about Boyle in that film is he didn't have a lot of money. You know, it, it wasn't a huge film. And he makes this unsettling scene with one of the most like creepy baby prosthetics props things you've ever seen. And like, then you fast forward 20 years later and we have like uh, Bradley Cooper holding a little robot baby. <laughs> in America. Like, yeah. We, how have we reverted in like big creepy <laughs> baby technology that we go from like the Twilight stuff where they like, I guess they like deep fake the baby's face. Yeah. Twilight, but I mean, you're, it is, it's amazing how with less money and uh, less op- options and opportunities they had, they still made something that even today I hear people talk about that scene as being one of the most unsettling that they've ever watched. Mm. Poor sick boy. Sick boy. Yeah. So, okay. Let's talk about the characters really quick. So this is very much a character driven movie. We, we follow four or five characters. Uh, we seem to focus on Renton, played by Ewan McGregor, and the other characters are his friends, and they kind of come in and out of his life uh, through you know one way or another. Uh, like the scene where they're running from the cops at the beginning, which we then come back to in the middle of the movie, we find out they're shoplifting to get money for drugs. And uh, his friend, like who I think is the most kind-hearted one of them all, Spud, <laughs> is the one that goes to prison. And I think that's that's kind of funny in its own way. <laughs> like, you got these four assholes, and then you got this one guy who's actually, like, a decent guy. He just kind of 
not the smartest guy in the world uh and not the most you know i guess naive i'll say he's a little naive a little bit uh and he's the one that ends up going to prison like there's something about that to me that just makes me laugh in a dark way if you think about it he would probably be the one everybody would turn on first because he is the easiest right he's a a doormat yeah Um, yeah and that's my thing that's interesting about all those characters is is that why are they friends you know, the, what they have in common is, is drug addiction. It's heroin. Yes, they all do heroin yeah, her- together. Right. And like uh, uh, later on when Tommy comes into the picture and he gets, they hook him in. And, yes. You know, and, and you realize that's really the only thread that keeps these characters together. And it, I would imagine just about everybody would throw Spud under the bus mm-hmm. given the first opportunity <clears throat> to save themselves. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I want yeah, to talk about Tommy for a minute. So Tommy was... Was one of the two guys uh, who did not do the drugs, who did not do heroin. The other guy was Brigby, and uh, they both were like, "No, we're we're not gonna touch that shit. It's you know, you know, we're gonna stay clean or whatever." But then Tommy wants to try it out himself, and then Renton helps, you know, sort of guides him into it, and then he ends up becoming addicted, and then he gets uh, HIV, and then he dies. And it is just so incredibly fucked up that, like, Renton was, like, the one that kind of did it technically. And he was the reason why he wanted to try drugs to begin with because, if you recall, he stole the sex tape, which caused him, which caused the breakup with his girlfriend. Uh, that's my favorite joke in the whole movie is when, <laughs> it, when, they're, when they're watching this, uh, when trying to figure out a sex tape, and then they had the soccer goal. The and soccer, on, yeah. <laughs> and then Renton has the line. I can't remember the line, but it's like, that's just like the goal so-and-so made up. Yes, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, so <laughs> That funny. was a brilliant scene. That whole part was, was awesome, yeah. But, but Tommy is interesting because Tommy makes you question whether Renton is a good person or not. And I know that being a good mm. person isn't the end-all, be-all of what a movie needs to be. Mm-hmm. But I think through most of the movie, these, a lot of these characters are portrayed as victims in a way. Where it's mm. their addiction that's causing them to do this. There's a, there's the addiction. There was no reason for him to bring Tommy into the fold. No. There was no I don't any other than maybe if he ruined somebody like Tommy, it didn't make him look like such a bad person. Like maybe it was Tommy was like the glowing reflection of bright light of of what the world wanted people to like him to be. And then oh, and if he could be dragged through the gutter as well, then what hope do the rest of us have? And I think maybe that made Renton feel more um or less like a piece of shit but in reality it made him more of one yeah i mean i i it wasn't until this last viewing that i caught on to holy shit tommy's death is technically on renton because everything he did was because of renton like the whole sex tape and then gave him the drugs and then when he went to go visit tommy like the you know there's like in the middle of the movie he goes visit tommy and his apartment's like trashed and uh, he Tommy's just not looking good. Like he easily could have like got him help, but instead he enables him by giving him the by giving him more money to go get more drugs. Yeah. So it's like everything with Tommy is technically Renton's fault. And I never once thought any of these guys, the exception of Spud, maybe were good people. They all were terrible in their own right, which I think is what makes this movie interesting. In that we're following four or five assholes. Who <laughs> were just like going through life, you know, hopped up on heroin, stealing stuff, stealing TVs from old folks' homes to get money uh, to buy more heroin, and yeah. then 
And then the fact that, um, like another person that who kind of dropped out of the movie, actually, the mom of the baby, uh, is sort of also responsible for the death of the baby because mm-hmm. she's just high all the time. Yeah. Um, like these are not none of these people are good people. Like none of them. Like, but it's still intriguing to watch, you know, because normally you want to be like. I don't want to watch a movie full of assholes making terrible decisions and doing bad things, but something about this movie makes it charming. <laughs> is that the right that, word? No, that is a good. I mean, number one, number one, it's a good word and it's charm because your characters, even if they're not likable, they have to be charming enough that you're interested to see where they go next. Yeah, which is like why, like something like Train Spotting is entertaining in reality shows can become so damn infuriating quickly is because there has to be something redeemable in those people. And you're hoping that you're going to find something. I think Renton kind of proved <laughs> at the end there's not. Um, but I think like Begbie's, I think Begbie was probably always an irredeemable asshole. Oh yeah. Um, no matter what situation. And I think Renton and Spud were probably like the kind of people that were, they're going to be whoever they're socially around and emulate. So they ended up kind of in losers in the loser click and therefore, you know, everybody started doing drugs. So they did drugs too. I don't think Renton had a lot of like, I think the first half of the movie, it's like Renton goes through his rebellious phase and he comes out the other side of degenerate. And that's kind of where we meet him. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, I think for the most part though, I think, yeah, they're all, yeah, they're all pretty terrible people who've done pretty terrible things. Um, and I don't know if it's so interesting that they made a second one 20 years later. Because yeah, I was going to bring that up. Yeah, I was going to actually talk. I'll, about I'll wait. Till, I'll wait till you bring that up. There. But um, yeah. So the fact that we're we're just watching, you know, four people who are just terrible, uh, do terrible things, and then we're sort of rooting for them, and then the fact that yeah, we 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 plop into this movie kind of like in the middle of everyone's story. Um, which makes sense because if you look into it, the book is technically the second book of a trilogy. Um, and I didn't know that until I started doing research for this episode. So that, that was really new to me. Um, the, the second movie is based on the third book and I guess that they're just not going to touch the first book. I don't know, but, uh, yeah, oh, it, 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 if, if they can squeeze money out of it, they'll, <laughs> they'll find a way to make a prequel. Yeah, I was going to say at this point, the way, I mean, after watching Matrix Resurrections, it feels like anything that has any yeah, social relevance no. in the 90s, they're going to remake whether it makes sense or not. Well, there, yeah, there is a whole other train spotting book out there that they really could squeeze out of. If they wanted to. But yeah, it very much feels like we're in the middle of all these people's stories, which makes sense again. Uh, and then I, I like that I like Renton's kind of arc is basically just a circle, because he starts off addicted to drugs and he wants to quit drugs and he quits drugs and he gets back on drugs and he's addicted again and then he gets off of drugs and then he he sort of redeems himself a little bit by getting a decent job. He moves to like the bigger city. Uh, and then Big B shows up because he's wanted by the cops, which that sequence cracked me up. I'm sorry. That whole part was funny when they were living together. Yeah. Uh, cause I, I've had a terrible roommate and this is like the quiz essential terrible roommate. <laughs> this fucking guy. <laughs> yeah. I, I would not want to be roommates with this guy. And then sick boy comes into the play too. <laughs> like, yes. So and then he ends up getting addicted again because they get into this scheme where uh, they get drugs and they try to sell it. By the way, did you know that the the guy that bought the drugs is the is the writer Irving Welsh? 
I did not know that. Yeah, uh, well, I can't remember the character's name. It was like Bill something. Um, he's the one that sold him the uh, depositories at the beginning of the movie. Oh, right. Yeah, that's the that's the writer. That's the guy. Another, another great scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do yeah, the 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 worst toilet in Scotland. That scene, yeah. like, gives me also the heebie-jeebies just because of all the filthy, disgusting stuff and. This was also a directing choice on this part when he goes into the toilet. The, something about that part is kind of oddly beautiful. It, it's it's it is just kind of amazing how they did that scene and how well it turned out. And again, just the kind of the balance of the really terrible visuals of the toilet, and then you have sort of this pristine water with the light shining through when he dives in for the suppository. Yeah. But it, it, it's such a, it's such a it's kind of like one of those things that he just committed to Boyle just committed to just painting this world as ugly as it really was. And most of the time in movies, you're trying to make things look, you're trying to add more polish to them. And in this one, it feels like he added an extra layer of shit everywhere. Very but they, much like so. those are, <laughs> yeah. like the apartments and the flop houses they stayed. Like I remember watching this movie and thinking like, this is the best argument against drug use. Like just show somebody right? because it was scarily realistic. Like later yes. Years later, I had the opportunity to, to be around and research some drug addicts. And I got to tell you, like, you think some of these things in these movies are kind of like played up for entertainment value. But I've seen people like go uh, lie out their ass for, you know, for money, for drugs, do anything. It is. T- and, and I think people thought that movie was a cartoon at the time because <laughs> we, we didn't have the Internet <laughs> yeah. and we didn't have the opioid crisis yet. Right, right. So the yeah, average, yeah, yeah, yeah. so the average American citizen had not watched their friends, their neighbors, mm, their yeah. family members get fucked up on pills and watch it ruin their life. And then crystal meth and uh, oxycotton, those motherfuckers, the Sacklers, those yeah, pieces of yep. shit. And I think because of that, at the time, it felt so like I imagine somebody watching Train Spotting today would be like, "Oh, it's like Euphoria." And yeah. Like, <laughs> Yeah, it kind of is in a way, but it's just a different culture, a different time, and a different drug. Like, uh, but and I think that's what's interesting too is when you see a train spotting. Train spotting is the quintessential heroin movie. Yeah, um, it just it. I think it just covers the highs, the lows, the depressing tragedies, and I think it's uh, because of the time it came out, it was incredibly novel and incredibly fresh because we weren't used to seeing that every single day like mm-hmm. we are, you know, in this current hellscape yeah. we existed yeah 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 actually the day that i watched train spotting i also coincidentally watched the season premiere of euphoria so i had a very interesting <laughs> night um it's a hell of a double feature that was a hell of a du- i do not recommend doing that anyone out there Whoa. do not watch train spotting and then immediately go to uh episode one of season two of euphoria your brain's gonna get fucked up you, uh, <laughs> you, euphoria is like you like train spotting all right let's add sexual identity things into this as yep, well yeah and then turn the volume up to about eight and a half or nine yeah euphoria yeah. i feel euphoria to me doesn't feel like it, it could use a little bit of train spotting's levity like, <laughs> yeah like, it does it could yes yeah because it's a gauntlet man like especially yes. when you do a tv show mm-hmm. like when you were talking about the first book in this series i was like i'll bet you they'll make someone will make a tv series out of it like a multi-part Ooh, series that might not but, be bad no no i'd watch it but i think you, you have to have a little bit like just even a just something in there where because again i think transpotting the brilliance of it was it made you feel light and airy before it pulled the carpet out from beneath you and 
suddenly you realize, oh, fuck, this is all going to turn out terribly for everybody, isn't it? And, <laughs> you know, I think that's it's so important to have your characters be at least charming enough that you care about what happens to them, even if they don't make the right choices. And, you know, a little bit of levity so you can at least be like, oh, this guy's not a bad guy. Go, oh, no, wait, he's fucking awful. Um, <laughs> which I think Transpotting does so well. Indeed. Uh, okay, so this soundtrack, let's go to the soundtrack just for a minute. Uh, it's mostly techno music, uh, except for the Iggy Pop song. Uh, but it's mainly techno music. Uh, which I think is an interesting choice, uh, just because of the time period that the movie takes place in. Uh, but the but the novel takes place in the '80s, and as far as I know, they don't mention the music in the '80s. Uh, so, I, I, do you think it having a techno soundtrack kind of helps it a little bit, or should have had like an '80s soundtrack? No, I actually love the soundtrack. I owned the soundtrack. I was actually working in college radio um, when the movie came out, and the soundtrack, we were spinning stuff from that all the time, back when you actually used to have to spin vinyl. Yes. Because uh, remember, I'm old, as we started this conversation. Um, <laughs> but I actually think it helped kind of introduce the, because, you know, EDM and techno stuff, like that was, it was already huge in Europe. Like in the, in, the, in the 90s, people were listening to it over there. And I think it kind of helped open the door for stuff like Prodigy over here in the later part of the 90s because the soundtrack was huge and i think it worked really really well for kind of the again that that trippy back and forth between you know that edm music that techno stuff it's also upbeat and kind of dreamy and drifty like you listen to you if you pop ecstasy and dance at the club this is the kind of stuff you're going to hear and then it gets into you know uh, uh, lou reed's per, uh, perfect day and that song yes. when he's when he's overdosing in the carpet <clears throat> And it, oh yeah 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 such a good song and i think yeah. that's it there there are some really good techno tracks buoyed by some really dark um you know there, there's some i remember if i remember correctly there's some blur on there um there's some there's blur some, yeah there's some blur there's um pulp. i think there's a pulp song on there is elastica um, yeah so, it's, it's basically a who's who of british artist in the in the middle 90s right but i think the soundtrack was awesome it's such a and honestly it's hard to have a objective opinion on it at this point in my life because it was such a huge part of my college experience you know movies yeah. like train spotting and that's and soundtracks back then were like it was like pulp fiction made the soundtrack so vital to a film like it almost became yes. like a make or break thing mm -hmm. um and i think train spotting i think danny boyle was smart and just said you know i don't want to emulate a style I want to kind of pull these pieces, these club scenes, tracks, and I think it's probably one of my favorite soundtracks. I agree. And um, so the song that, that ends the movie, uh, Born Slippy by Underworld, to anyone who was not around in 1996, 1997, at least at least in my area, I'm from Chicago, um, that song was everywhere. Like. Yeah. Our our alternative rock station played that song like every hour on the hour for like a year and a half, and and I hadn't heard it in a while. So when it came up on the movie, I was like, oh wow, I completely forgot about this fucking song, and I forgot it was because of this movie. It was it was a it was a B side when the the band you know released their album like a year prior. And then it got used in the movie, and then the movie became such a hit that the song then started rising up through the charts. And I always, I like, I kind of like when it does that, honestly, because um, 
The only other example I could think of where something like that happened is Wayne's World with Bohemian mm-hmm. Rhapsody, mm-hmm. where, you know, because Bohemian Rhapsody was in Wayne's World and Wayne's World became this huge hit, that Bohemian Rhapsody came back onto the charts and became, like, the number one song of, like, 92 or 93, whenever that movie came out. Um, yeah, I think I agree with you on that. I do love when that happens. It's always nice when a, when a piece <clears throat> of media or a movie, anything, a TV show can make something. Like, I remember at the end of one episode of Mad Men, there was a Beatles song that I used to love on the White Album. And they played it. And then everyone on Earth was like, have you ever heard this song by the Beatles before? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I have. But, like, when Transponding came out, like, there were so many people. Now I worked in college radio, so I was pretentious as hell. Oh, geez. So, you know, I'm like, I spin all the cool records, man. You don't even know with your CD players. But um, you would, <laughs> people, after Transponding came out, people didn't know who Iggy Pop was. So Yeah, like, that's just true. That's true, That was yes. their first exposure. So I think Transponding... Yeah. Did a lot for Iggy Pop. In it terms did. Of, like, it made him relevant again. I'm, and I'm, I'm going to say I've not heard of Iggy Pop until 96. And and then looking into it, yeah, he was around for like ever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, but it's great when a, movie, a good movie, a good filmmaker, a good, you know, music, uh, whatever the name of the person on the film who picks out soundtrack songs, who isn't the director. Um, those guys, that job is so important. It's Because, I mean, you mentioned the end of Transpotting. I'm the same way. I can watch that movie, the song comes on, or the ending comes up, and mm-hmm. I'm right back to that time and place when I saw that movie and how much, like, there's very few movies that still do that to me, because remember, I'm old. So, <laughs> Trainspotting is one of those movies where it, it literally takes me back to that time and place. Uh, I know where, like, you were in college, your whole life was ahead of you. You're seeing this whole crazy world of, of, of Edinburgh drug addicts in, in you know, in you've never been able to see something like that at the movie theater before, you know, you, cause you'd see independence day or you'd see Jurassic park, but this wasn't a place where you went to see, you know, low rent drug addicts in Scotland. Yeah. And I think that's, what's so great about train spotting. Even all these years later is I think it really does capture that world and that, that skewed point of view from those characters. Uh, and I think that's why it's endured. In yeah, absolutely. Now. Okay. Let's go ahead and talk about the sequel, uh, which I'm going to say, I've not seen. I'm going to be completely honest here. Have you seen the sequel? I have. Okay. Now, I didn't have time to. I was trying to watch it for the show, and I didn't get a chance to watch it, but I feel it's, it's okay because um, it's, it's not going to make or break this show. Uh, I did read the plot synopsis on um, Wikipedia to see kind of what did happen. Like I was like, <laughs> what What could it possibly be about? Like what? You, you're going to make a train, a train spotting sequel in 2017 – what is that possibly going to be about? So I had to know like what happened. I just I, I'm just laughing because I like the I like the idea of the expression of look I haven't seen the movie but I've read the Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, therefore... just to get an idea. No, I, no, no. I, I, I'm not saying I'm an expert on the sequel or anything, but I'm not I just wanted. To... I'm a cultured, <laughs> well-educated man, but I have read the Wikipedia. In <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm an expert now. Damn it. No, but uh, no, I just had to get an idea. And um, okay, well, first off, did you like the sequel? Just yes or no? I did. I did. I didn't okay. love it. Like, obviously, it doesn't hold as much place like as the first one. But like, I, it wasn't bad. It was well made. Uh, it was fun seeing these characters again. But it kind of took away. What's interesting about the end of Transpotting is, is it doesn't really end in a place where you know where the characters are going to end up. You assume Begbie's going to jail. You assume mm-hmm. Renton's going to start a new life and probably not, you know, probably not going to succeed the way he thinks he is, even though he has all that enthusiasm with that smile on his face. 
you know, you don't know what's going to happen to these characters. And then when you when you make a twenty sequel twenty years later, then you have to tell everybody. And then a lot of that fun kind of goes away of imagining. I wonder if Begbie just got beaten to death by the cops right there. So it's not a bad <laughs> movie by any stretch. But when a movie has a really good ending, it makes it sequels take away from you the piece that was the director left dangling for you like a carrot for you to kind of jump that and think about it use your imagination and kind of wonder where these characters ended up um well yeah so well my question was i'm not i'm not a huge fan of 20 plus year sequels like i feel like if you're gonna make a sequel it should have happened within a few years um a really good example of that is coming to America, the second coming to America. <laughs> I, I, as much as I like the original coming to America, the the second one was just not good. I <laughs> not good my, at all. One of my favorite movies <clears throat> of all time is coming to America. I saw it in the theater when it came out, mm. and loved it, loved it, loved it. Because again, I'm old, so I saw it in the theater, and then <laughs> I watched eight minutes of the sequel and turned it off and was like, oh, this is what this is going to be. I don't care anymore. Like yeah, once they it, the fourteenth reference to the original movie in the first eight minutes, like we opened up a McDowell's in Africa. I'm like, get the fuck out, done. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I was not. I, I wanted to like it, but I, I think they just failed miserably. So that's how I view when they make like a sequel like twenty years later. So I was really hesitant when I heard they were making a Train Spotting two way back in 2017. Um, and then they have the gall to call it T2. <laughs> <laughs> I, wasn't there already a film called? <laughs> yeah, like like that, that's some that's that's some nerve, Danny Boyle and Irving oh, Welsh. Jason, that's some, all the that's rules, some nerve. <laughs> Jason, the, the infrastructure has been torn away. There are no rules anymore. You can call the fifth mm. Scream movie Scream, and you can call the eighth <laughs> Halloween movie Halloween. It doesn't fucking matter anymore. You can call whatever you want to call it. <laughs> You want to call it T2 train spotting? That doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. Yeah, no. Yeah. Now, I, book? It was, based, was it based on the book? It's based on a book, the third the third book in the series, which is what called is which is called Porno. Oh, well, fucking call it Porno then. But then I but then, you know, Uptight America, they're not going to uh, allow a movie called Porno to be run rampant into their theaters cuz oh no what if a 5 year old sees the word porno and wants to know what does that mean i forgot so what assholes i forgot what assholes we are yes yes good old america i'm sure every other country would have been okay with it being called porno but we can't have that here so we got to call it t2 train spotting i'll bet china would have had a problem <laughs> <laughs> Just okay. based on all right, based on all fair. Things, That's a fair based point. Based on all the shit they shoot down, I don't. Yeah. That is a fair point. But um, okay. So you said you liked it. And you said it was good to see the characters again. Yeah, was it, it was fun? Was it as edgy and gritty as the first movie, or was it no. toned down? No, was it toned it was, down. Here's what I liked about it. This is the the best thing I can say is if you're gonna make a 20 year sequel, you should make it like this one, where okay. you're not. You're not erasing all the things that happened in the first movie to get the characters back to a place where they're young and scrappy. They're exactly. scrappy in this movie and they're trying to make opportunities for themselves again. They're trying to, Renton's trying to go straight, is basically. Again? 
Well, he comes, yeah, he comes, <laughs> it's kind of like he's on a conciliatory thing where he comes back. He's got a, a few different reasons to come back, but it's, it, and they're trying to like start a business and he's trying to kind of get things, set things right that he felt he didn't in the first one. But I think the problem most sequels make is, is they immediately go, oh, we have to make another one. And at the end of the movie, our heroes were here. So we have to take the rug out from under them and ruin their lives and start them over again. So we can go beat by beat to the exact same place we went to the first one. And T2 Train Spotting, yes, still a dumb title, does <laughs> at least gives you a realistic approach of these characters are now 20 years older and here's where they're all at in their lives. And they don't like, and I guess it was maybe easier for them because their lives weren't all in great places, but they didn't do the thing where you're just redoing the first movie. And that I was like, thank God, because I'm so fucking tired of sequels that are just the first movie again. Mm. If that makes sense. I think I I get what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. I got a little ranty there towards the end. No, it's fine. I I asked about the, I, the perfect because I've not seen the sequel, so I can't. You're ranting for me because I can't speak one way or another. I'll probably Jason, check it out someday. If I were you, if I were you, if I was in your shoes and you love the first one so much, don't uh-huh. watch the second one because even Do though not it, watch oh, even okay. though it's good, I almost wish I still had that part of me that just saw the first one. And mm. still constantly question when I watch it what happened to all these characters. Gotcha. Ignorance is bliss, my friend. Gotcha. So okay, to to rewind a little bit and then going back to the first movie, uh, the 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 book and movie is called Train Spotting, yet they don't mention it in the movie. What what exactly Train Spotting is? Now we know if you know that it's an actual like hobby people have where they go to like train stations or whatever and they look at trains because people like trains which is fine i'm i'm not here to make fun of anyone's hobby or whatever but they never it never comes up in this movie but uh when i was looking stuff up about the book that it very much is kind of a sort of a central thing in the book um because it relates to um uh begbie's dad who is a train spotter he his dad was also an alcoholic, and he spent all of his time at train stations, and he did train spotting. And that was what the book was a reference to. I find it interesting they did not even include that <laughs> in the movie, <laughs> but they yeah. still called it train spotting. <laughs> that would have been an interesting thing to know about, because, I mean, Begbie obviously doesn't get a lot. He gets a lot mm. more character moments in the second one where they kind of dive into his, his quote-unquote values. Okay. Because um, in the first one, it feels like he doesn't have any. But at that age, you know, you know, he's still presumably young. Although he looks like twenty years older than every <laughs> every other cast member in that movie. Uh-huh. But um, yeah, it, it that would have been interesting to know. I mean, I assume you know when it comes to addiction, his parents probably were you know, they, they're probably not the first members of their family to deal with addiction. Um, but yeah, I guess at some point you got to kind of figure out what you want your characters to be in the movie. And I think he went. The way you were mentioning the narrative seems so challenging. I guess Boyle just thought, let's do Renton's life, and then everybody else is, is a supporting character. Yeah. And then you kind of get them to the point where you realize that Begbie's value as a you know malcontent might have been enough for the story he was trying to tell. Gotcha. So, um, <clears throat> uh, so just uh, to kind of wrap up here, uh, so what is it about Train Spotting? You might have already answered this, but I just don't remember because I'm old too. Uh, what is it about train spotting that you like? What like what makes it 
like your favorite 90s movie of all time like what what is it about this movie that's about heroin and four addicted loser assholes who steal shit and uh shit in bed we didn't talk about that part but this Uh, spud shits in the bed and (laughs) fly everywhere uh renton technically sleeps with an underage girl yeah uh, but then she bribes him to stay with her Uh um and then and we actually oh and then another thing i didn't mention uh is there's a lot of interesting nudity in this movie not even from women just the guys we see a lot of dicks in this which is also an interesting choice but i think that's also because everyone involved is from england which nudity is like not a big deal over there from what i've heard it does. It feels. It does feel, especially when it came out at the time, that all the the full fr- the drug use, the full frontal nudity, the the sexuality of it all. And again, there's things in there that they could not make today, just because of yeah, yeah. times have changed. There's things you couldn't really, you couldn't do that anymore. But nope, nope. It, I do think that yeah, that was one of the things too. That it was so like maybe they're more comfortable with that. The, the fact that they're British being comfortable <clears throat> with anything sexually or with clothes that seems a little shocking to me. That can't possibly be right. Um, just <laughs> thing i've ever read about conservative british culture is they're kind of prudes well okay i was just gonna say so i have a friend who lives in england like and i had her on one of my other shows and we did a we did a really interesting deep dive of comparing our countries and uh she told me that at certain times of the day which i want to say it's nine o'clock at night you can show whatever you want on tv and that includes drug use, nudity, sex stuff. Just not hardcore sex, but you can show sex. And the reason I bought this up was because I, I did, like, a f- bunch of years ago, I watched the original uh, version of The Office. And there's this part where two characters are just flat out having sex. Like, like you don't see... You don't see penetration. It's not close up or anything, but they're they're fucking going at it. And I said to her... Because I had the same thing. I was like, I thought you guys were really super uptight and everything, but I watched this Office episode, and they were fucking, like, in the parking lot. And she's like, no, yeah, after 9 o'clock, you can kind of just do whatever on TV, and no one really says anything. So, yeah. <laughs> so the British are extremely uptight until 9 so 9 o'clock, yep. <laughs> then anything like, goes. And it's like the purge. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah, it was very interesting. I was like, "Oh wow, okay, that's kind of cool." Actually, I wish they do that shit here. I would, <laughs> I would love like you know a bunch of like shows here in America on regular TV, not cable. Just like, hey, here's an episode of This Is Us. Now here's some fucking. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> hey, you know the guy from This Is Us? Here's his penis. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, there's some dick. I that so. would that would make me more inclined to actually watch a show like this. <laughs> right? Right? See, yeah. that would be that would, ratings would be through the roof. I mean, it'd be like, you know, like it's like This Is Us, but with male penises. I'd be like, you know, I'm curious enough to watch that and see what on earth they're talking about. Maybe we need to make a British guy in charge of the FCC. <laughs> uh, okay, so yeah, really quickly, so just wrap up here. Uh, your thoughts on Train Spotting, why you like it, and all that stuff. Any final thoughts you got? Sure. When I was when I was younger and I saw it in college, mm-hmm. it was because it was bad. Why I loved Train Spotting was because it was bombastic, it was loud, it was dark, it was funny. And it, it was uh, something I had never seen in a cinema before. And it, that experience, somebody who likes to be creative – profoundly changed my view on things. It introduced me to things that I had never been exposed to before. 
And now I love it in my later years because it takes me back to that time and place. And it still to me serves as a testament of great independent filmmaking in the nineties that I don't think has ever been uh, surpassed in terms of the quality and the stories that were told and the honesty uh, and the brutality. And I love it so much now to watch because it's just such a wonderfully written, wonderfully directed, wonderfully acted film with a fucking banging slapping soundtrack. And it's just a good time to watch, even though again, it's dark as hell. It's still very entertaining, and I, I I didn't really talk my thoughts into it. That's that's my fault. Um, I very much enjoyed this movie, and it does very much remind me of a British Pulp Fiction. It's very stylized. It's character driven. Um, I love the cinematography. I love the direction. Uh, like the part where uh, Renton is overdosing and he goes into the carpet. Uh, and then he's just like in the carpet as he's being taken to the hospital. Like that's a beautiful filmed scene. I like all of that. Um, again, it's terrifying with the dead baby. Like there's just a lot of really great things about this movie. The acting is wonderful. Um, I don't know if this got nominated for any act. Ah, I should probably look that up. Uh, I think this got uh, two British Academy Awards. Nothing here. That's crazy. I think that's fucking a shame. We were um, such prudes back then, like government-wise. Like they were so anti-drug and the nineties and shit. The only it, thing that it got for Oscars was it was nominated for best adapted screenplay, but it lost to Sling Blade. Oh, that's a bad look these days. Like that's like I don't think anybody <laughs> goes back. I mean, I don't think Sling Blade was a bad movie by any stretch, but there's sometimes those obvious glaring issues that people have when they look back and say, oh, this movie should have won over this one. Yeah. And that's definitely one where I think I would have much rather have seen Trainspotting got that Academy Award. But that's the category they give to movies they can't quite figure out what to do with. Which award. is a shame. That is such a shame. This could have got Best Director. This could have got Best Picture. Ewan McGregor should have got Best Actor. Like yeah, it's it's uh, a, that's such a shame. That's I would shame. have absolutely yeah, I would have been I would have been happy as a pig and shit if they had all won. I mean that thing had been taken off and been all sorts of awards. <clears> but you know what? That's the same thing too. As years go by, I really stopped giving a shit about awards. Now I'm like yeah, they always, yeah. They usually get it wrong. And my favorite stuff is rarely the favorite stuff of people who you know uh, very successful people in Hollywood. So. You know, I'm fine when I hear, like, people were freaking out about Kristen Stewart not getting nominated for Spencer. And I'm like, who gives a shit? Like, did you like the movie? <laughs> were you happy with it? Okay, that's enough. It does, you know, she doesn't need a statue. She's very, very rich and very, very successful. And if you're feeling bad for her, maybe there's you could spend that time to work on yourself a little bit. Indeed. So, all right. That's that's it. That's our takes on um, train spotting. Uh, Angus, it was awesome talking to you. I really enjoyed this conversation we had about train spotting, and uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show. You were you were wonderful. Oh man, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me. It was great to talk about this movie. I love talking films, and this is definitely one worth talking about. That's The Bomb, yo. 90 hella rad movies from the 90s is hosted, written, and edited by me, Jason Soto. I can be found on Twitter at FamousComedian, or you can email me any questions, comments, or concerns to rabbitholepod at gmail.com, spelled R-B-B-T-H-O-L-E. 
P-O-D. This show is a Rabbit Hole Podcast production. You can find this episode and several other great podcasts over at rabbitholepodcasts.com. And you can follow Rabbit Hole Podcasts on Twitter at rabbitholepod, R-B-B-T-H-O-L-E-P-O-D. Until next time, I'm Jason Soto, and remember, wear sunscreen. Copyright 2022 Rabbit Hole Podcasts, rabbitholepodcasts.com.